Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 23rd, 2019, and my guest is author Ryan Holiday. This is Ryan's third appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here in April of 2018 talking about his book, Conspiracy. His latest book, Stillness is the Key, is the subject of today's conversation. Ryan, welcome back to Econ Talk. Yeah, I'm, I'm really honored to be here for the third time. I'm, I'm just flattered you, you asked me back. Always good to talk to you. Uh, Let's start with what you mean by stillness and why it's important that we cultivate it. Well, I think one of the tricky things uh, in my, my book sort of before this was was about ego, and then this one is about stillness. There is a kind of you know it when you see it element and in, 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 in ineffableness to stillness. So I, I don't know if I have this, you know, one sentence definition, but I think when I say the word People can think to moments in their life when things were slowed down. Maybe it was a moment of sort of creative insight or a flow state, or they were staring out at something beautiful. They were uh, in the mountains or or on the beach, or they can remember a, a quiet evening at home with their children or a book or a spouse. It, it's, it's this idea of... <clears throat> Of, of of when of when the world has slowed down to the degree that we can see it for everything that it is we have this sort of inner peace we have this clarity about what's important to us about what matters and what I think so interesting about this idea of stillness uh, and, and what attracted me to writing the book about it was that you see these slightly different but at the core very similar definitions and and usage of the word in essentially all the ancient traditions from Buddhism to Stoicism to Christianity to Confucianism. They're all speaking of this idea of stillness. And I think when you really zoom out and you think about the sort of almost the stereotypical image of a wise man, whether it's Socrates or Buddha or Jesus or, or the Dalai Lama, the characteristic that sort of most defines them that they share at their core of their being is that is that stillness uh, just a a mastery of themselves of the world they they live in of the the passions and forces that swirl around inside all of us and for the most part i think are responsible for our unhappiness and so to me this idea of stillness then is this key that unlocks all these really important things that we both want to do in life and that we want out of life. Yeah, I, I like your point that you you know it when you feel it. Um, yeah, it's it's for me a combination of serenity um, and clarity. Uh, the I think there's a a common um, a Buddhist image of of muddy water becoming clear mm-hmm. as the sediment sinks to the bottom. Uh, I think Thich Nhat Hanh tells a story about, I think it's his, 
described as the little girl who watches the coffee become clear as the sediment falls to the bottom or the tea. It must be tea. And, and she says, look, the tea is meditating. And I think the, the idea of getting the dirt and the sediment to, to go to the bottom is a, is a powerful metaphor, to, is something to strive for. Uh, it, not, it's not easy. And it's not obviously clear as to what that clarity is about. But I think that somehow gets at it. No, I would say it's not only not easy, it, it may be like the hardest thing that there is to do. And, and, and that may be why you see it appear that that muddy water analogy or metaphor, it's, it's one of the few universal metaphors that we have. We see it in all the philosophies, the ones that, as far as we know, n- never connected. Um, and, and so independently that these wise people were coming up with this idea of like, oh, if you let the water sit, it, it, you get clarity to me is is the essence of, of what I was trying to say in the book is all these different schools uh, cannot be wrong. And, and only a fool would sort of decline to listen to to the wisest people who ever lived. And and if it, if it, if these things were important in their time when they didn't have social media, when they didn't have 24 hour news, uh, you know, when they didn't have smartphones and and it took 15 days to get news of something, you know, delivered from a, a neighboring city. Um, how, how much more desperately do we need that that stillness and clarity and patience today? I'm going to ask you a question you sort of deal with in passing, but you don't really focus on it. Um, I'll give you an example from from this past week. I was fortunate enough to be uh, walking on uh, on Saturday morning and I, I saw an iris, which is a flower. Mm-hmm. And I was able to stop and look at that iris for about uh, probably a minute, maybe a little more, not, not a lot more. And I was just struck by how exquisitely beautiful it was. And I noticed how the yellow looked like it had been painted on just for decoration. I saw some little fibers that were in the wind and just the delicacy of different parts of it, the different colors. And it was the word I would use to describe that experience uh, is it was delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was just just lovely. And then it passed and I kept walking. And I remember appreciating that I was able to appreciate the flower. But what's the use of, of, of stillness? Um, I would make a distinction. You allude to this. Uh, it's a life hack, not a productivity hack. Now, it does have, yeah, sure. it does have a productive aspect to it. But I think if we pursue stillness or serenity or clarity as a goal in and of itself to make, excuse me, not as a goal in and of itself, but as a, uh, a tool toward being more productive, uh, I think that kind of destroys it. And if that's true, first I want your, I want your thoughts on that, and sure. then, then I want you to a- answer the question, so what's the point? I mean, it's lovely. It's an interesting human experience to be still in a chaotic, busy world, but why should I care? No, I look, I had a very similar moment myself this morning. I, I take my son for a, a long walk each morning. He's still in a stroller. And we were walking on the dirt road by, by our house. Um, and I caught, as we were sort of going down this hill, I caught um, uh, the the sun coming up over uh, our, our back pasture near our farm. And, and it I was struck at at sort of how yellow and orange it was, how bright it it occurred to me that I'd 
as long as I'd lived in this place, I'd, I'd never actually seen it from this angle. And, and I, I felt, uh, I felt wonderful. I felt serene. I felt calm. Now, why was this possible? It was one, cause I, I took myself outside. Uh, I hmm. left my, I left my smartphone, uh, it, inside i was with my son i my eyes were open i was not doing anything else i was fully present and so i I had this moment and like you you sort of appreciate the deliciousness and then and then you go on um but but i think a couple things so i think one um we know these moments are really special uh and they're deeply meaningful to us and then it's it's striking to me how rare they are the fact that you could point out this one from a few days ago it's 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 standing out precisely because of how rare it is but it seems interesting to me that as meaningful as those moments are basically our entire life is built around making them not possible <laughs> so i'm not necessarily saying that that we should be going out and actively searching it i think uh i think these moments ensue more than they can be pursued but but we can take positive steps to uh, encourage them to make them more likely. And I would argue that when you know an hour or so after this moment, I sat down and and did my writing for the morning, that that I was in a better place for having had that experience. And that had I instead been not paying attention on the walk, sending an email or playing with an app on my phone or, or, you know, stewing over some, some, you know, grudge that I was holding on to, I don't think I would have been in as, as good of a place. So I don't, I, you know, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Piper, I'm, I'm terrible with names, but the, the, the German philosopher, he had this idea yep. that leisure is an incredibly important part of life. And he was saying that leisure can make us better at work in the same way that praying can make you sleep better at night. But if you're praying to improve your sleep, you're missing the point. So uh, I don't think we should be seeking out these moments of stillness uh, to get an edge over other people. But we can know that as intrinsically valuable as they are, they they do make us better at what we do. And, and one of the most interesting things I found when I was researching the book was 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 this note that Kennedy had written to the 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 White House gardener for her important contributions to the safety of the world because he he'd spent so much time walking in the White House Rose Garden during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, um, you know, I don't think that's not why the White House Rose Garden is there. But it is an important benefit of it, and and to not avail yourself of it is a mistake, I would think. So I, I, I agree that the, those moments are rare, uh, but I do think they can be cultivated. And I do mm-hmm. think – cultivate is not the right word. I think you can prepare yourself uh, or you can act in ways that make them more likely. I guess my defense – I haven't thought about it much, but my my first thought is that there's a vividness to life um, when you experience those moments that makes you wonder what you're doing the rest of the time. Yes. <laughs> like, like, no, I'm, exactly. like I'm not really alive. I'm just drifting along, flicking my screen and Twitter or whatever it is. Not that Twitter doesn't have some intellectual rewards. I think it does and other types of rewards. Uh, I've seen many videos on there that brought me to tears or that moved me. I don't want to overstate the unlife the lifelessness of Twitter, but it doesn't compare to admiring that iris for me most of the time. 
and I, I do think we can cultivate it and certainly, as you say, to prepare for those moments to ensue more often. The thing that's, that I struggle with, and I'd be curious on your thoughts, is why do, given how delicious those moments are, why is distraction and busyness so seductive? Why is it that I rebel against slowing down so often? I don't know. I mean, I, I would I would imagine that the same the same openness and vulnerability and presence that it takes to uh, be moved to tears by a flower or to experience the deliciousness of a of a sunrise or or the sort of natural sounds of, of you know a stream running over rocks that's a that's a vulnerable place to live and so or, or to be even for a few fleeting seconds and so maybe it's that as as much as we like those moments we are intimidated by or scared by by the potential weakness or or vulnerability that we are we are putting ourselves in so i think that's part of it i would say the other thing is is that as as wonderful as these sort of I call them sort of moments where you're bathing in the beauty of the world as, as wonderful as they are, they, they do require work, right? Or it, it almost requires work to not be working to then have that moment. And so the other things are easier, right? Your phone, if, if we're, what we're really afraid of is being bored of opening ourselves up to what's around us, to really seeing, um, that that's that's harder to do than just picking up your phone and having instant validation or even instant uh, aggravation. Uh, So so we we're addicted to I don't want to say it's a quick fix, but like even an addict would tell you like uh, these there are these moments they've experienced in sobriety that are far better than any of the highs they ever had while they were while they were, um, you know, chasing drugs or alcohol. But then even even if, you know, getting high on heroin is a seven and having a beautiful moment with your child is a 10, the truth is you can you can shoot up heroin anytime you want. Right. And so uh, it's 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 a shortcut maybe. And and that's why this distraction or these less meaningful but but and, and much more harmful moments are the ones we choose over the other ones. I really like your point about vulnerability. Um, I think about how hard it is at times to be in the presence of of emotion on the part of another person. It took me a long, long time uh, as an adult to be open to that from, say, an acquaintance or a stranger or even a, a friend uh, that when that when a raw emotion is on display – say, grief, um, or even joy. Uh, there's a natural impulse, I think, to look away. Sure. And because it's it's too intense, it's too human, it's too much. And I think part of our impulse to check our phones and stay busy uh, is, and in the old days, it was to flick through the channels on the television. I think the natural impulse to do that is to, is because there is a scariness and a vulnerability to intimacy or experiencing intense emotion. And I want to use that as a segue to, to talk about uh, Marina Abramovich, Abramovich, excuse me, who um, 
who you write about and her exhibit in 2010 at MoMA called The Artist is Present. So talk about I, – I, I was fascinated. I didn't know about this. It's really an extraordinary thing. Tell us what yeah. you did. It, it's it's possibly one of the greatest uh, you know sort of athletic feats of human endurance that, <laughs> yeah. that I've ever, I've ever yeah. come across. It's this is incredible. I mean, so so the the retrospective of her career. She's a brilliant performance artist. A, a lot of her art is sort of sexual and violent and strange and surreal. Um, but but they titled it "The Artist Is Present," and then her idea for the her performance at the retrospective was that she would be present, like literally present for the basically the entire thing. And so from you know like nine to five each morning for something like three months. She basically sat in a chair, stared uh, at her audience, and then one by one, someone could come and sit in the chair across from her, and they would look directly in each other's eyes. And uh, there's a fascinating documentary about it, which you can watch, and there's also YouTube footage, but you can almost uh, every person breaks down in tears when they're staring. It's this profoundly moving experience because it, it may be the first time that they've ever been present and experienced what it is to feel another person being present to you. Um, what what Marina is is doing is you know basically sub sub uh, sublimating every human desire, uh, bodily function, uh, boredom, itch. You know, everything you can imagine to simply stare and look at this person and and they're just overwhelmed by it. And and so to me, this and she says, you know, basically to to do something that's close to nothing, to be present, she says, maybe the most difficult kind of performance she's ever done. And I mean, she she's had performances where she stabbed herself with knives, where she's whipped herself, you know, where she's sub. Uh, uh, submitted her body to extreme physical harm and pain and actually the hardest thing was to slow down and do nothing and and this idea of being present is something we pay a lot of lip service to and we know is important um, and we know that we don't we can't change the past and we can't really influence the future and yet we are so very rarely present. And and so I tell the story in the book as just this illustration of like the sheer inhuman uh, feat, this, this, this woman that basically a warrior managed to, to pull off. And I think it's a very inspiring example. And she did it all day long mm-hmm. without a break. She never fell asleep. She never had to get up to go to the bathroom. Didn't she eat. never she didn't eat. She never even I mean, to me, this is where where I get anxiety just thinking about it. She didn't know what time it was like. She didn't. It's not like they were like, OK, 15 minutes left. Like like if you ever just sat there, you had nothing to do. You go, oh, my God. So like an hour has passed. Right. And then you look at you. You finally check the time and it's like 16 minutes have gone by to be to do that. Every, to, the, the sheer mental control it would have taken to slow the mind down to prevent it from being your own worst enemy to making the physical, like the physical feat is only possible with sort of iron and iron grip on your mind. And clearly that's what she has. And she did this for 79 days with over 1500 people sitting across from her one by one by one day in, day out, 79 days, nine to five or whatever the hours were. 
it's as you say, it's it's one of the greatest athletic feats of all time, and, and maybe the great one of the great mental feats of all time. That that she and she didn't speak, of course. I mean that right. that quote goes without saying. But but imagine sitting for eight hours opposite a total a set of different strangers, roughly thirty minutes each one, and and not saying a word and giving yourself over to their gaze. Eight hours at a time, day in, day out. I, I can't, I can't fathom it. It, it, it overwhelms me. And 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 not only can we not fathom that, just I, I can't even fathom doing that for like three hours, right? And and so so the, to me, it's 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 just realizing how incredibly hard this is and how it runs sort of counter not only to all the technology we have and the lifestyle and the culture that we have. But it runs counter to our sort of almost our most basic in- instincts. When they when they asked her, they asked her former collaborator, his name is Ule. They they used to date, and then they had this sort of weird relationship. But they asked, they were like, "What do you think about what she's doing?" And he go, and they describe it to him, and he goes, "I have no thoughts, only respect." <laughs> and that's sort of my that's sort of my reaction to to hearing that a person did this. I'm just. Uh, all I have is respect because I know how hard it is for me to, you know, just to just to enjoy, you know, just to sit down to dinner and go, I'm not going to do anything but this. I'm just going to be here for dinner. And and there I have the ability to get up and go to the bathroom or or talk or or fidget or or or, you know, do anything that I want. And even that's extremely difficult. And so I think if we can one of the reasons I wanted to present that story in the book is is realizing that she she basically prepared for this like an athlete and she saw it as an an intensely active thing to be doing even though it was close to nothing and we have to realize that presence isn't just going to be this thing that shows up it, it's going to require you know intense focus and concentration and, and commitment from us. So I'm going to quote Winnie the Pooh, which I don't think I've ever done on um, on Econ Talk. And I don't know where this is from. I think it's is actually from Winnie the Pooh. It it, it might I might have the um, you know it could be a uh, urban legend, but I think it's it's so Winnie the Poohish. Um, so it goes like this: "What day is it?" asked Winnie the Pooh. "It's today," said Piglet. "My favorite day," said Pooh. And I think the idea that today is the best day. And I'm not going to think about tomorrow. I'm not going to think about my vacation in two weeks. I'm not going to think about the mistakes I made last week. And that Marina Abramovich sat there and didn't, as much as a human can, didn't think about anything other than the person in front of her. And it wasn't thinking about them, actually, just gazing into their eyes and not thinking, as you point out, oh, when's this going to be over? Oh, I'm itchy. Oh, I wish I could get up. What time is it? Right? All those human impulses that we have, she was able to control them sufficiently, at least. I don't know how well she actually controlled them, but sufficiently at least that people slept overnight for the opportunity to gaze into her eyes and be gazed back at in return. And I, I guess there are probably many listeners out there thinking, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Why would you want to sit for 79 days doing that? Why would anyone want to sit opposite this crazy woman? And part of it for me is having been on silent meditation retreat, which when I mention that, people always go, I couldn't do that. Why not? 
well, I could not talk for five days. And I always say, that's the easiest part. (laughs) (laughs) The easiest part is the not talking. The hard part is looking into your soul for five days and realizing that it's not quite what you like to think it is at times. And I'm sure for, for the artist in this case and the amateurs who sat across from her, the, uh, the people who got to experience a half an hour of this, it, it was profound. It wasn't just a goofy, it sounds like a goofy, uh, a, a parlor trick, a party trick, sure. uh, a, a stunt. I, I'm sure it was not a stunt. Um, well, it was a stunt, but it was a particularly powerful stunt. And the part I loved about your writing about it is, I mean, that was fun. It's really interesting. It's thought-provoking for me. But I also was struck by your wondering about these people who sat across from her. Then they went, they left, and they wandered out into the streets of New York. And were they different? Were they changed? Or was it just like, oh, that was cool? Uh, who knows? But where right. you thought about that a lot? Yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 another example would be like, what about these people that you know met Jesus or have have been in the same room as the Dalai Lama or, or sort of experienced that the, the other sort of greats of of history who who had that presence and and peace it's so much that you, it's almost palpable when you're in the room with them. You know, they then went back to their normal lives, which were stressful and distracting, and they were pulled by urges and desires and frustrations and fears and anxieties. And so um, we, we, on the one hand, we hold things up like Marina's performance or, or you know, we, 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 we look at the in, inhuman sort of stillness and equanimity and enlightenment of these sort of great wise figures that some of whom are alive, some of whom are, are not alive. And then we, we, we are only able to access it in such a fleeting, ephemeral way and, and how sad that is and how, um, how much better the world would be if we could increase that even by 1% or 10%, you know? Um, and, and if I, I, when I think about my own life, I think about my sort of the moments when I've done my best work or when I, you know, I, I had my next, uh, the, the book I'm going to write next, I was, uh, you know, at the beach with my family playing. I was not thinking of anything except you know, this sandcastle that I was building and therein, uh, th- there pops into my head an, an idea that, that, you know, will, will, uh, at some point hopefully reach lots of people. Well, it has been you know lucrative for, for me professionally, it will be fulfilling <laughs> creatively. And, and so it's like, the more we're trying to advance in our careers, we're trying to get this stuff through sort of sheer will. Um, I, I talk about the archery master Awa Kenzo, who's the the main character in the you know the famous text Zen and the Art of Archery. He was saying that sort of willful will is actually our our sort of uh, our biggest enemy when we're trying to do all this stuff on purpose. We're actually not creating room for that mastery or greatness or or insight or or whatever you want to call it to 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 come in to ensue naturally and so um you know these these people had this great moment with marina um and that may be the the only moment they have like that in their life because they're just not there's no room for it 
Wish I'd had one with her. I think that's. Really? I wish I'd made me want to be in that line and, and sleeping. Over, I don't know if I could have slept overnight. Um, yeah. But I don't know if I could have handled that. But it's. Um, I had this idea, by the way, of having. Um, and I'm throwing this out here for anyone to implement this because I think it's a fun idea. It may be more than fun. I'd love to have a space where a Democrat and a Republican in 2019 America could come and sit across each other from each other and just look into each other's eyes. Now, uh, half an hour would be a very long time. So I think I think I'd start with five minutes and just sure. we just ring a bell and let, let people come in and out. Uh but there's something about experiencing another person's humanity in that way that I think – I mean I've had a handful of conversations in my life that captured some of that. Um, they're unforgettable. Um, they weren't all with, with my wife or with my children uh, or loved ones. They were Some of them were with near strangers, but I was able to be present for them in a way that, again, I wouldn't have been able to have done in the past when I was younger. But I really recommend it. Now, having said that. I think it's important to talk about the downside or what appears to be a downside to all of this talk about presence and stillness okay. and, and today, which is uh, if you're sitting thinking about the present all the time and you're not planning your next book and you're not daydreaming sure. about what you're going to do next, uh, a lot of people would say you're not going to accomplish anything. You're going to just sort of drift through life in a different way than the distracted life. The distracted life is, yes, often – a failure of, of focus and so focus is good and being present is good and experiencing others in a in a vivid way as well as flowers and birds and sunrises but you know aren't I going to miss out on all the things I could have done because I'm not planning I mean what shouldn't I think about the future all the time yeah I, th- I think it's a, it's a balance you know um I'm not sure that the people who are not planning their future are actually living in the present they're just being drawn from one short-term pleasure to the next pleasure. So, so that when when you and I say, don't, you know, think about you got to plan your future. We're thinking, okay, what, where do I want to end up in my life? Who do I want to be? What's important to me? What do I want to accomplish? Um, and and obviously, there's some people who can work themselves into such a state there that they they completely neglect the present. But the person who's just playing video games all day, I'm not sure I would define them as a present person. I think they're just going, I want to play video games, so I'm going to play video games for a while, right? Like I, I think they're they're being drawn along by stimulation and gratification, um, not not necessarily fully giving everything they're doing, everything they have. To me, that's what where this presence is valuable is when you say, I'm going to give 100% of myself to this moment. I'm, uh, and, and then, and then uh, I, I understand where this moment perhaps fits in with the other moment. So, you know, I, I talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis a little bit earlier. I think that's another great example. Kennedy was, what was remarkable about Kennedy in that moment is he seemed to be the only person in the entire United States government at this time who was interested in thinking about what the Soviets would do in response to what the Americans would do. That was what was so alarming about the advice he was giving. They were saying, look, we got to bomb the hell out of Cuba, then we got to invade Cuba. And Kennedy was like, well, what happens after that, right? Like, what is Russia going to do when we invade them? And it, it was almost, it was clear that a lot of these advisors, these generals, had had actually never thought that far in advance. And what Kennedy was able to do is go, look, we got to think about what they're going to do in response to what we're going to do and then what we're going to do in response to that. And he said, it's not the first step that worries me. 
It's the sixth step <laughs> because none of us are going to be around to see that. And so it, in deciding to do to see it that way, it allowed him to then look at the immediate choices in front of him and go, OK, let's let's do what we think is right here that we think preserves the most options for our opponent and then not get carried away about what our secret plan is or our ultimate. He was like, look, my main thing is I just don't want the world to be destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. So I'm basically willing to do anything and everything that's going to get us to that point or prevent that from happening. So when he puts in this quarantine or this blockade around Cuba, um, now immediately everyone is thinking, well, they're going to cross the blockade. You know, uh, now we have to attack. It was it was clear they weren't being in the present. What Kennedy was saying is again, he's like, okay, we put this we put this into effect. Now let's wait and see how they respond to this. And and so it was this sort of slowing down this this not getting both both not being ignorant of what's going to happen in the future, but also not not fast forwarding to there that that allows it, you know, his, his expression was, let's use time as a tool, not as a couch. I think that's a very philosophical insight. You, if I told you Buddha had said that, you'd, you'd <laughs> go, oh, that's 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 very profound. And and, and that's the idea. We want to use the pre- we want to use like, let's say the present moment is 60 seconds. Let's use all 60 of those seconds. Right. And and if we can do that cumulatively, that's going to give us more time than the people who who are, are just sort of whipping through one thing after another. Yeah, it makes me want to um, take a 60 second break here just to see what that would feel like. I'm not going to do that. But you as a listener, of course, you can do you, that any time. Just there's this, a little pause button. You pause it, just wait a minute and think about something that was said. Um, I think that's a bizarre aspect of, of podcasting. That Not only are you not going to do that, listener, you've got us at 1.5. <laughs> right. You're zipping along so you can hear this conversation in under an hour. Um, it's just an interesting aspect of life. Uh, all my kids listen at 1.5 or 2. Not to Econ Talk. They, they're generally not listeners. I should just reveal that right now out of shame and humiliation. But the videos and, and audio that they do listen to, they tend to listen at high speed. It's just interesting, uh, the idea of, of either going at normal speed or actually pausing and thinking about what, what we've just said. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. Like, <clears throat> I know that technology exists, but it, it, I think, and I think this is a virtue. It doesn't occur to me that there is a speed that a conversation is happening. And to me, a conversation simply is what it is. Like when I read a book, I don't think, how can I speed this along? How can I get this over? I think this is uh, the book. This is the book as the author intended it, and it is intersecting with the. Uh, amount of time it takes me to read it in my life and that that's the experience. Uh, I don't try to speed it up. I don't try to speed sex up either. I don't try to scarf my meals down to, to be done with them as, as soon as humanly possible. I, I want to, I want to experience them. I, I, I want all of it. And, and I think, um, that, that it, again, that's that idea. When you, when you look at the really wise people, uh, the people we really admire, there is there is a deliberateness 
and a deliberate slowness almost to how they behave and the demeanor and and you know to me a, a sign of youthfulness is that sort of overabundance of enthusiasm and energy which is often getting you into unnecessary trouble and a sign of maturity is is a slowing down and a savoring and an, an ability to be a bit more philosophical and appreciative and present. And, and to me, again, the word for that that I use is stillness. I think the, the people we admire have stillness. The people who, when we get a peek into their lives, uh, whether it's on television or, you know, they're a friend of ours or whatever, who lack stillness, those are the people that we go, oh, man, it does not seem fun to be them. You know, it does not. That does not seem like winning, uh, and and uh, and and to me, that's that's what we're we should be trying to work towards is is more towards stillness and and away to, away from that sort of frenzy and exhaustion and burnout. Well, I, I want to mention again um, when I'm on silent meditation retreat, I eat mindfully, which means that I look at my food before I put it in my mouth. Uh, I savor it in very as rich a way as I can. I notice the the smell of it. I notice the texture, the different parts of my palate and tongue that that it touches and the different flavors. And I love that. I find it, um, well, delicious is an obvious word in this case too. And yet when I come back from retreat, I eat my food quickly while I'm reading uh, something on the internet. And um, it's just um, interesting how hard that is to to actually do, but I want to I want to pay you a compliment that may sound like an insult, um, okay. Brian. I think you're I think you're 32 years old. Is that correct? I am. Yes. I know that because you wrote an essay on Medium, uh, thir- something like 32 lessons from turning 32. Yeah. A, 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 an essay I'll will link to because it's really a wonderful essay. So I know you're 32. I'm 64, which is kind of fun. I'm twice yeah. as old as you, exactly, more almost exactly. Uh, I, I was born a few months uh, later in the calendar year than you, but basically I'm twice as old as you are. And you might be the oldest 32-year-old I know. Uh, you're very uh, unlike uh, the other 32-year-olds I know. Uh, you just revealed that because you said you don't uh, speed up your audio files yep. and you read it you don't try to find ways to read more quickly and so on um so it's sort of a you're an old man uh in a certain dimension and i mean it as a compliment because uh i know i'm not twice as wise as you are i might be a little wiser but i might not be you might be wiser than i am uh but you're certainly wiser than your years and part of the reason that's true is that you've read a lot. You've thought a lot about these issues. Uh, I didn't for a long, long time, and I've enjoyed uh, becoming aware of them, and I also have some regret, which I try not to to marinate in, but uh, that, that that it was a long, an old age before I started being as a little more self-aware. But you're, you're, doing, you're on a good path uh, at Thank 32. You. You're, 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 you're way ahead. Uh, I don't think just I don't think you're just way ahead of me. I think you're way ahead of a lot of people, but I think the downs that I'm going to be give you a criticism, uh, which is uh, at 32 you might not realize how unnatural many of these um, admonitions or encouragements or inspirations are 
for most of us. Uh, so the idea of being still might appeal to people. You might be listening and thinking, yeah, this sounds great. Uh, how do I get there from here? And I think for some people, it does just come more naturally than for others. But there's not, a, unless I missed it, there's not a lot in your book about how to get better at it. Uh, other than just saying, you're going to like this a lot. This will make your sure. life better. So sure. think about, reflect on that for if, you, if, you, if you can. No, I can't. It's, it's, it's actually something that I've, I thought consciously about when I was writing in, in the sense that uh, I, I'm someone. Uh, so when, when you talk to me about going under silent meditation retreats, I go, wow, I, I couldn't do that. And it occurs to me that as there's this incredible value in the sort of stillness and serenity and peace that comes from meditation, that clearly a huge percentage of the population either isn't ready for or doesn't believe they're ready for. And so it's become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy Um they just people don't meditate. I mean, the amount of times I've been told to meditate and the amount of times I actually <laughs> sit down and meditate, you know, it's 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 an enormous imbalance. There's a and gap. So what, I, what I wanted to, to write the book about was like, how can we access these things? How can we talk about it? How can we start to realize that it's important in a way that doesn't tell people to go do a bunch of stuff that they're not going to do. You know, like uh, if we say 90% of the population is just not going to meditate, then all of these beautiful texts that more or less start with this are really doing themselves and people a a disservice. A friend of mine is a sort of finance, a finance guru. And he basically goes like, look, nobody keeps a budget. So the (laughs) fact that every personal finance expert starts with telling people to go keep a budget is not only dishonest, it's incredibly ineffective. And so what I tried to build this book around is, is a little bit less the Eastern idea of stillness, uh, you know, the sort of abandonment of self, the, the yeah. sort of complete inactivity, you know, the the detachment from the exterior world um, that I think is is wise and brilliant and something that I'm certainly trying to work towards in my own life. And, and I tried to make it a little bit more Western. I think you can I'm not saying you can think your way to stillness because that's a paradox or a contradiction, but I think we can think ourselves a little bit closer there. We can make some progress. And so I, I tried to root the book a little bit more in Western philosophy. You know, the, the whole third, the final third of the book is like, basically, how can you get stillness physically in your life? And so, you know, we were talking earlier about going for a walk. I think intense exercise is a way to do it. You know, building a routine that's effective and sort of conducive to stillness. So, so yes, I'm, I'm not saying here is a five-step roadmap to having stillness because I think what that's calling on people to do is stuff they're not going to do. But I wanted to kind of chip away at it from all these different angles. And so hopefully, you know, when people emerge from that, they'll, they'll, they'll have some insights, a larger sense of, of how to move closer to it. And I, I think I did the same thing with with my book about obstacles and my book about ego, I'm not saying, you know, here's the guide for destroying your ego. It's more like if you start to think this way, you are going to, to naturally curb ego and, and be better able to spot it when it's popping up and then and then be, be, be more equipped to reduce it. And of course, you know, meditation is really hard. Um, 
I go off and on that regimen. I try to meditate more than I do. I think about meditating more than I actually do. As you say, there's a gap, um, an imbalance there. But um, that is only one way. It is, it's a common way uh, that people do get to this uh, phenomenon you're calling stillness. But another way uh, you, that you do talk about in the book, to, to be fair to you, is, um, is journaling. Mm-hmm. And I, I want you to talk about um, what you mean by journaling, and then talk about your own practice, if you if you would. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start. I'll start with my own practice. So this morning I went for the walk that I talked to you about, and then uh, I sat my son down. He, he ate breakfast with my wife, and then I I went upstairs and I I opened up. I have three journals. I have one journal called a one page a day journal or one line a day, and I just write. Um, what I was doing, what I did yesterday. And it's, I'm, I'm three years in, so I can see like it was, it, it, it felt wonderful. For instance, yes, I was, as I was writing today's about yesterday, I wrote that I was recording the audiobook for, for stillness is the key, but I could see that the day before or the, the, the same day, the year before I could see what chapter of the book I was writing mm. And 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 then you know the the day before the the uh, the year before I, I forget what it was but it, but it's this idea of just like I don't even that, that that was a year ago that's like incredible to me right and and so I I, I use that journal I really like it I have just a a, a Moschine journal that I write um, I record sort of my exercise that I that I did the day before something I'm thinking about sort of something I'm working on I, I talk about maybe a problem that I'm I'm struggling with I. I you know, what I want to improve on. And then the other journal I write in, and this isn't a plug, I just actually use it. I, I made a journal uh, about two years ago called the Daily Stoic Journal, which is based on how the Stoics sort of thought about journaling and philosophy, which is this, it was this thing that you spent some time thinking about in the morning. So you kind of prepare your intention for the day. And then in the evening, you reflect on how you did you know, with that intention that you were thinking about. So I, 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 that, that whole process maybe takes five, 10 minutes. It's not a long time, but it's kind of the warm up for me, um, for the day, um, for the writing that I have to do for the mindset that I want to be in for the person that I want to do, I want to become. And that process of putting my thoughts out on paper, spilling them out, you know, uh, Julia Cameron has called writing sort of spiritual windshield wipers, which is an <laughs> analogy I love. It's just it's just a, a you know, a clearing. And and uh, by taking that time, I, I feel like I get the benefits of it throughout the day. And and look, there is clearly a very ancient tradition of journaling. It's it's incredible. The more I, I read about Stoic philosophy, which is a philosophy I'm most fascinated with, the more it's clear to me that, for instance, in Marcus Aurelius's meditations, how much of that writing was him rewriting in his own words things that he'd read elsewhere that he was trying. So so you basically find out that Meditations is actually sort of like an unattributed quote book more <laughs> than it is the original thoughts of, of the most powerful man in the world. And, and so the idea that people have just been doing this for as long as there have been people makes me also find a, a, a bit of – centeredness and stillness just in just in the idea that this is a tradition and and a practice like like prayer or taking communion and and i think we're stronger for rituals like that you're you're a big person for routine and you 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 emphasize the uh 
the power of routine in your book, although I do think some of this is very person-specific. I think for some people, the idea of sitting down and spending even as short a time as 10 minutes a day doing anything, mm-hmm. whether it's writing in a journal, whether it's meditating, whether it's uh, contemplative uh, silence, uh, prayer, any of these um, forms of what I think of as, as therapeutic forms of self-awareness – is unbearable to a lot of people. It's obviously not. Un- I don't think it's unbearable to you. You might actually even. I think it sounds like you enjoy it. But talk yeah. about just talk about the value to you at least of routine. Well, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people have a schedule or or have a chaotic life. These can be two sides of the same coin. Precisely so they don't ever have to have ten minutes by themselves. Yeah. Or or ten minutes of quiet time. And so to me. Believing that stillness is important, believing that insight and, and, and good creative work comes out of it, I try to build a routine that, that facilitates it, that encourages it, maybe even draws it out um, versus I don't want to have a calendar that's filled with a bunch of other people deciding what I get to do with my time. Like one of the rules I have for my assistant is is I basically – Never have more than three things scheduled in the same day unless I'm traveling. Um, so, so today I <clears throat> recorded an audiobook and I have this conversation with you. And those are the only two things that I permitted to be scheduled. And, and so to me, I'll, I'll, my routine is in some ways kind of about control, but I think control in a, in a healthy way, control in the sense of autonomy. I want to, I want, as much of my time to be focused on the work that brings me satisfaction, um, that brings me happiness, that that I think I'm the only one that can do. You know, I'm not sitting there trying to write books that uh, if I didn't write, somebody else would write. And so I'm trying to carve out space for me to do, you know, what I think is my sort of unique calling. And, and my routine is there to facilitate it, to reduce potential interruptions to, to make it habitual and almost a second nature. And that's, that's, uh, that's what routine is to me. I think the reason you see athletes uh, obsess about routine is, a very simil- is, is from a very similar place. They love this game that they play. They know how easy it is to take yourself out of the mindset necessary to be great at it. And so they try to build their lives around a, way, a, a, a process of, of sort of con- like working themselves towards that place they need to be for 90 minutes or 90 seconds or nine seconds, you know, depending on what their sport is. So what I'm excited about is that you're telling me that we have five or six hours free to just keep talking. I think this, this uh, listeners, I can hear exulting around the, around the world. Uh, <clears throat> it reminds me uh, your, your, your different journaling habits. One of them reminds me of a, a really nice um, idea from AJ Jacobs, in our conversation about his book, Thanks a Thousand, where he talks about his one thing journal, mm-hmm. where he tries to, after a conversation or after a lecture or after some kind of experience, if there's one thing that stood out that he wants to remember, he just writes it down. And the idea that I'm going to write one thing that happened yesterday, it's not really one thing that happened yesterday. It's it's one a description of, of what yesterday was, was mainly about. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, a version of what, of what he did and does. And I think that's a, I, I've done a little of it now. I wish I did more, I, but just to emphasize, I assume this is a written journal, not a type journal. I assume yeah, you're working I mean, on in, with pen and paper. 
I think it's got to be pen and paper. I, I mean, look, I, there are certainly people I've heard from that journal on their phone or journal on their computer, but I think the analog nature of it is important. I think it's part of the ritual. Um, you know, I, th- I you go to mass, you don't watch a video of other people going to mass, right? I, I think you lose something in the in the reproduction or the simulation of it, and so yeah, it's 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 the it's doing it by hand, and and I try. Uh, and I've, I've set some more rigorous rules for myself lately, but I try to do this journaling process before I've really interacted with any of the technology in my life. So before I've checked my phone, uh, before I've pulled up my computer and looked at email. So it's about, in, in a way, I'm, I'm delaying the engaging with these, I think, uh, valuable technologies, but also potentially uh uh, addictive technologies. I'm just delaying the process by which I engage with them and, and eliminating, uh, you know, any unnecessary dependence on them. Now you have a very um, ritualistic way of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you use. I've read about it. You, you've written about it in detail. We'll put up a link to that as well. Uh, the way you use three by five cards and. I find it uh I find that deeply appealing and impossible. Uh I've <laughs> shared that with my children in case it grabs their interest, but I imagine it will not. Um but I I, I thought about this the other day when I interviewed um Andy Matushik and this is uh this episode hasn't aired yet, it'll air soon, so you have not heard it. But he wrote an essay um recently called Why Books Don't Work. I think that's the title. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah, and he points out in there that we read a lot of nonfiction books that were are supposed to impart knowledge or wisdom or understanding, or even just facts, and yet weeks, months, days, hours after the book is done, we remember nothing. Not just not as much as we'd like, but nothing. You are a voracious reader. You put out a wonderful uh, ongoing newsletter about the books you read and your recommendations. Uh, I know you take extensive notes on them. So I want you to first react to Andy's uh, claim that books don't work and then uh, how you've made books work for you by your uh, ritual as as a reader with three by five cards. And of course, you're a special reader in that you write books and you use books to use quotations and stories brilliantly to enhance your own books. So there's a method to your madness that, that pays off in a literal way, but I think you would do it even if you weren't a writer is my guess. (laughs) No, I I mean, it certainly predates my time as uh, my career as a writer by, by many years. I, I agreed with the article in the sense that I, I agree that most books don't work. The vast majority of books even don't work. Um, but but to me the headline is disproven by the fact of of how many books have have personally changed my life and I think any person that reads a lot you know knows um, the the power of books. Um, it'd be hard to find someone in the sort of literate era uh, who who accomplished anything of really any major significance that wasn't a, a reader in some form or another. So, so books work, but it's probably like democracy where it's kind of like the worst, best technology that we have. Um, I think most books don't work because most authors don't, don't do a great job. 
most ideas aren't really worth reading about. Um, most uh, most authors don't do the, the hard work of really communicating it in a way that's likely to be absorbed by or used by the reader. Um, when I read what I am thinking about, I'm I, and I learned this from my mentor, who's Robert Greene, um, whose books are also very story and, and anecdote driven, is I basically read. And as I'm reading, I'm, you know, jotting in the margins, I'm folding pages, I'm, I'm marking things that I think are interesting. And then I give the book a little space and then I go back through it and I transfer by hand all the things that I like onto note cards. Every single one of my books has begun this way. You're a lunatic, Ryan. You're an absolute lunatic. So after you've gone, which which is really hard to do, to underline and write notes in the margin, you go back and rewrite them. This is crazy. I guess it's crazy, except except the the ROI is clearly there. I mean, I wouldn't have this this That's return if, return on investment. Yes, yeah, I wouldn't have this you know career that I've had. I, every single one of my books began with an accumulation of note cards about some idea that I was seeing. You know, the idea that stillness was popping up in all these different philosophical texts that I was reading. That's what that's what got me onto the scent of the idea that there might be a pattern here. And so I, I think it's 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 the process of interacting with the material in some sort of active fashion. You know, so many people I go, oh, they, they hear about my system, they go, I love your system. I have something similar with Evernote. You don't have something similar with Evernote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's like thinking that because you cut an article out of the newspaper, you have it memorized, you know, um, or, or because you shared some link on Twitter, you have some deep connection to what's going on. It's the process of of reading it, kind of forgetting about it, going back through the book, noticing, oh, I marked out this passage. Here's here's what that passage is about. Here's what I think about it. Um, now I'm going to either take notes on it or I'm going to copy it out by, you know, I'm going to copy out the entire passage. I'm going to write the page number. I'm going to write the author. I'm going to write the title of the book. And then I'm going to file it away until, like, I have every every uh, day I send out an email called the Daily Stoic, which is a Stoic inspired email. And so right next to my computer, I have a giant stack of note cards that say DSE in the corner for Daily Stoic email. And so when I sit down, I try to write a couple of them a day. I, I just pick up one of the cards and there I have already pre-made, you know, uh, an idea for a piece or an anecdote or a story or a reaction I had to some idea. And and so the reason I'm able to be as productive as I am and, and have written the things I've written is because I'm doing a lot of the pre-work um, long before it ever gets to the point where I, I sit down and say, I'm going to write something now. I still think you're a lunatic. But my I question is, am. but I my question am. is, how much time each day do you spend with a note card writing on it approximately or is it is it is there a regular regimen of note card writing yeah uh, right right now i've i've been a little busy so i'm probably you know a month or two maybe more behind oh like my gosh I, I have a big <laughs> i have a big stack of books that i have to go through oh. that i've read but i would i would say i'm interacting with or using note cards 
every single day, either something that I've already done, either a note I'm jot, you know, I, I, I heard something on the radio or I, I had an observation. I thought about something where I, 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 I wanted to go research something. I'm using these as kind of notes to myself. It's kind of a living, breathing, you know, uh, uh, organism that is, that is my brain out on these note cards. So uh, when I write a book or an essay uh, and I have a strange uh, – I have an, an extra thought. I don't know where it goes or I have yeah. a quote or I have an idea or I have an article. I have a little thing at the bottom of the page where I just make a list. I don't number them. They just start filling up. And part sure. of it is, by the way, is and I'm sure this is true for you with the note cards as well, it's just a comfort. Uh, it mm-hmm. means I have it. I don't have to th- worry about remembering it. And I, I know that it's always there. In fact, I do another crazy thing as a writer. Uh, I don't know if anyone else does this. I don't know. I, I, I made it up, but I'm sure it's not unique. Uh, anytime I cut something, a paragraph or more, I paste it into a document called Things I've Cut uh, uh-huh. related to the, the that particular book. Because emotionally... I know it's hard to do, as I think Truman Capote said, to kill your darlings. Something, a genius, brilliant, wonderful passage that I've written that I know doesn't really belong, but it's so good. And to help me cut it, I put it in a place where I know I can always find it again. Now, I never, almost never go back to that file called Things I've Cut. File. But, I have the same file, and I've never looked at it. But it's comforting. And similarly – Uh, When I write in books now, and I've confessed on this program before that this was something that I also did not do as a young person, but I've come to cherish it. I I, I don't always go back to read those passages, but sometimes I do, my margin notes. And for a book that I love, a book that I'm deeply um, transformed by, the kind of book you're talking about that, quote, changed your life, I, at the end of a chapter that is difficult – uh, we'll write a little summary there at, at the end of, the, of that chapter, if there's room especially. If there's not, I'm stuck. So I might scribble a, a shorthand note uh, in the margin at that point, trying to summarize the chapter in the equivalent of a, of a tweet. But you don't do that. You actually write it out. So the question I asked, which you ducked, <laughs> not, not intentionally, uh, is how much time you spend writing on your cards, those note cards. Is it an hour a day? On average, obviously, you say you're two months behind, which to me would mean it's over. I'll never catch up, and I'll just stop doing this crazy idea. But you're not. You're going to get back to it, and you've, you've written that you have, like, shoeboxes, like more yeah. than one. Like, one oh, would be a big number. Tens of thousands of, of, of cards, cards, right? Sure. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're single-handedly um, – uh, you're good for the environment, of course, because the demand for note cards encourages the demand for trees, which is they plant them so that they can make profit off selling them to you. It's wonderful. Uh-huh. But uh, how much time does it take you a day, roughly? Yeah, I, I, would say, I would say it probably takes me an, an, an hour to go through a book. So I probably uh, have – A whole book. That's not bad. Like ten, you know, 10 or, 10 or 20 you know, hours that I have to do to get caught up. The, 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 the real issue for me is, is like when I read a really good book, as you said, like a book that changes your life. You know, Like when I read um, – uh, your book on Adam Smith, and then when I read Theory of Moral Sentiments, in a way, I'm almost like groaning before I finish the book because I know <laughs> that in a couple weeks, uh, the, bi- 
the bill on this book is going to come due and I'm going to feel it in my hand, you know? And so, uh, I, I do, I do, I do, uh, that it's, it's only in those moments where it's like, look, if there's five or six index cards from a book, that's usually a pretty good book. But, but sometimes, you know, there might be a book where it's like, oh my God, this is like a hundred note cards. It's going to take forever. Um, especially big biographies. I tend to get a lot of my good stuff out of biographies. So, you know, when I'm reading Robert Caro on Lyndon Johnson or William Manchester on, on, on Churchill, it's like, I'm putting it off because I know just how long it's going to take to get me to go through this and, and how, how much I'm going to feel it in my hand. Cause I, the other thing is like, I don't really do any other writing. I, I write on note cards. I write to-do lists. And then I sign my name, you know, and that's basically the only time I really write anything by hand anymore. And then my journals. But so, so, uh, Oh, just those things, just those things. (laughs) You're so out in the right hand tail, Ryan. It's ridiculous. I, I actually, uh, I did a crazy thing. I bought a series of notebooks to improve your handwriting. One of them is, yeah, one of them is, um, goes back to like the early 20th century the other one's more modern but my handwriting is was never great and it deteriorated tremendously uh over the last 25 years because i do all my writing on com- sure. on the computer so when you say all you write is your note cards your journals inside of your name you're like you're, you're writing more than than probably a, the average uh, 100 people but um I haven't used those notebooks. I have to confess. I just got them. It's, it's recent. Can you write in cursive? Not no. I cannot. I learned. Yeah. My dad's a printer. My dad prints, and okay. so I printed as a child because I thought that was you know admirable. My only cursive signature. The only cursive writing I do is my is is on a check. Sure. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't do anything else cursive. So I, I write slowly. And badly, and I'm looking at my notes from this episode, which I write down. I jot down um, if you mention something that I think we should link to, or if I coughed and I want to cut that out, I make a little note. And there are times I struggle to read my own handwriting, and mm-hmm. I love beautiful handwriting. I, I admire it. So I like this idea of, of improving my handwriting um, as my motor capacity slowly deteriorate over the next decade or so but so, so it's a pipe it's a bit of a fantasy but i'm i'm optimistic i'm i'm not optimistic i'm <laughs> i'm vaguely hopeful but but that's sure. um that's honest yeah it's uh I, I i can't do cursive anymore either and i and sometimes i think back and i'm upset that so like how much of my time in school was wasted teaching this thing that i have no use for and and what could they have what uh, what um, important lessons in American history could we have learned instead of teaching me, uh, you know, how to use cursive in third and fourth grade? So, so I don't think you're very active on Twitter. Are you active on Twitter, Ryan? I don't. Are you um, on Twitter? I I, I am, uh, but I I sort of use it as a uh, mostly as just another form of email. I, I very deliberately don't have it on my phone. I don't check it. Uh, I, I I like it in theory, but I don't like what it brings out in me. It doesn't make me feel the stillness that we're talking about. Whenever I, I, I was actually, I was just talking to someone the other day. I feel like Twitter has had a massively corrupting effect, particularly on journalists. I think it is, um, 
it took people who who whose entire profession was about long form communication about complicated balanced nuanced understanding of what really happened um about you know getting to the truth of things and it turned them into being reactionary and mean and uh, they yell biased. they yell and, all the time yeah and they're and they're yeah. biased they they revealed their actual self in a way that would have been totally unprofessional and socially unacceptable in their profession 5 years ago yeah no and I, so i feel like it's had this sort of almost rat like the reason journalism and our politics are as polarized as they are i think the fact that 140 characters and now 280 characters i feel like that's been the radicalizing effect so i spent the long answer is or short answer is i spend as little time as humanly possible on it and most of what i do tweet i get i write and schedule in advance so i'm not actually using the platform in real time where i can be tempted or distracted or or riled up by what i see so i like it a lot more than you do and i and i've come to uh appreciate it a lot more than I used to. And I used to have merely negative feelings about it and would be on it, quote, in spite of myself, whatever that means. But I think there are ways to use it um, that are more productive than others. And I'm slowly working my way toward that. Um, I used to not mute people. I thought that was immoral almost. And now I mute them or block them. And I think, of course, you know, somebody said, sure. it's like, like your living room. <laughs> you don't let everybody yeah. in your living room. It's not a the, – the, the problem is it has a blog-like feel to it, but if you don't use it, uh, don't always think of it that way. I think it, it can be more helpful, but that's not what I mentioned when I brought it up. I brought it up because I have an idea for you, okay. which I th- you probably should resist, but I'm going to share it anyway. It's okay. risky. It's risky. I think you should – I think you should regularly tweet photographs of your note cards. Okay. <laughs> Of your of your your favorite notes of when you know, you finish a book, you say, "I just finished this book. Here are the eight note cards I took from it, or the twenty, or the three, or whatever it is." And um, I think people would really like it, but that's um, maybe not a good thing to give into because then you start thinking. Well, most, <laughs> I, I do I do I do tweet quotes that I like, and I would say, "Now nah, I want I want to I, I want to see your handwriting." <laughs> but I would just say eighty five eighty five percent of those quotes are. From books, so so it, it's actually I I left out a step in the process. So I'm taking the the notes, right? Uh, I I see a, a a brilliant quote from Churchill that I like, and uh, I write it down on the note card, and I I I say, okay, this is for maybe this section of stillness, or I say, or maybe I have to write it twice because I think it can also work in an email for Daily Stoic, or I just want to, it's it's a good piece of parenting advice that I want to have access to. So I might write the same card two or three times. And then if I feel like it's short and pithy enough that it would do well on, on Twitter, I also type it up and upload it into my scheduler and it goes out automatically on Twitter too. So I'm, I'm interacting with this material sometimes four or five times in a very short amount of time. And that's part, that improves my my recall it requires me to see it from lots of different angles and it's just it's it's more of an immersive experience for me so that's why i think books work uh, the only thing i'm going to add to that is that um uh, now that twitter is here i wonder if people try to make sure that their best and most eloquent statements are under 280 characters so people like you can can share them i you know the curious 
The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. My favorite Hayek quote, which I throw out just because we've had very few drinking game references, I think, in this episode. But I mention that because I, it, if I remember, it just fits or it clo- it's close to fitting. But then you have to put dash dash F.A. Hayek because otherwise people might think it's you and that's no good. Sure. So you, but you can always take a photo of it. That's why I like the photo with the card. You get a more than 280 character quote. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think uh, I like the, the idea. I'll get on it. Yeah, I mean, don't, when, don't, I, Ryan. It'll slow down your next book. I don't want. I don't want to slow down your next book. No, I mean a, rela- <laughs> a related a related anecdote to that. My book, The Daily Stoic, which is sort of one page of Stoic philosophy every day. There's a an original translated quote and then a story. We noticed really early on that people kept sharing photos of it, which is obviously wonderful. But I would look at the comments, and invariably, the first comment, people would go, what book is this? Because we designed (laughs) the book for people reading it in real life. And in real life, you don't need to be reminded what the title of the book is on every single page. And so we actually had to redesign uh, the second printing of the book uh, around making it more favorable and conducive oh, to being shared on, on Instagram. So yeah. we're constantly <laughs> being threaded through the needle of social media, whether we know it or not. Yeah. I want to shift gears and, t- and talk about uh, anger. And I've said a number of times on this program or elsewhere that unless you are at physical uh, risk of physical harm, anger is never productive. Uh, passion. Passion's good. But anger uh, is basically losing control of your mind. Uh, it, it, you know, we use the expression "he went crazy" um, when someone's enraged; uh, they can't think straight. So I'm generally against anger. And, and you, in a recent essay, wrote, um, "Has yelling or losing your temper ever made things better at home?" And I think the answer to that is no. And more than that, of course, is there are many, many times. Uh, I've been ashamed of my anger, regretted my anger. So I'm I'm a big opponent of anger uh, and struggle with it because I I think it does go with passion and I'm a somewhat passionate person. Um, You tell a fascinating story in your book that I was unaware of, of Michael Jordan's uh, enshrinement into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he spoke... For a little over 20 minutes, I went back and looked at the video after you had written about it. And um, to some extent, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking uh, speech. It's not delivered in anger, and yet it is a, a, uh, a shrine to his anger and how he cultivated it and maintained it over the years. Talk about Michael Jordan's anger and the lessons that you, that you learned from it. It's it's a very unsettling video to watch. It's it's one of the most awkward speeches that I, I've ever seen because you have a man who's who should be experiencing one of the greatest moments of his career. Here, all of his his lifetime of, of his life, yeah, is is being honored, and and um, it it become. It, I think he sets out in the talk to sort of show what it takes to be a champion. And, and and how he's used sort of feuds and rivalries and and proving people wrong as a as a motivational force. But I think what the speech accidentally illustrates is just how combustible and um, and 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 dangerous 
a fuel uh, like anger is because it ends up sort of blowing up all over him. I mean, in 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 a moment that I think he thought would make him look good, um, he he invited the man or the boy who was cut, who he was cut in favor of on his high school basketball team. And I think Jordan wanted to show, you know, I was cut and I used this to fuel me to get better. And instead, what's obvious is that he has been sort of hating and resenting and measuring himself against this totally innocent normal human being who did nothing wrong except be a little bit taller than another high school basketball player all these years ago. And, and I think when you look at, there are almost no philosophical school that says like, Hey, use anger. Anger is a really great tool. This is a modern rationalization that we've come up with. We, we now think anger is associated with political change and writing sort of grievous social wrongs which is a complete misreading of history when you actually look at it. Uh, and we also tell ourselves that, you know, anger is what successful athletes get over or use to propel them to greatness. And I just don't think that's true. And when you watch this speech, you go, even if it is true, I don't know if I want to be that guy. I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if I want to have created the most successful shoe brand in the world and be at my Hall of Fame dinner complaining about how much it cost in tickets for me to bring my own children to the event. You know, it's just it's really sad. And and you feel you can see that he is he is basically this walking open wound. Um, and, and and that that's I think what anger does. It 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 find if anger is a good fuel at early on in our careers, proving people wrong. The problem is once we do that, the body is not really uh, the body and the mind and the soul are not good at going, okay, we can stop that time to switch to something more sustainable now. No, it, it, it invents and, and, and cultivates even breeds, uh, new things to be angry about. So you never get past it. And and that's what you see in that Jordan speech. And I just found it to be quite sad and, and a, a very much a cautionary tale. Yeah. And it's about more than anger. It's about resentment um, and, and stewing and uh, a desire for revenge uh, is all on display there. And, it, 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 and there's, it, it's particularly strange because it, he's smiling and, 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 right. um, as he delivers it, it's he doesn't deliver it in an angry tone, but it's more revealing, of, as you point out, than than perhaps he means it for, to be. Um, I want to close with um, uh, a few ideas that are toward the end of the book that I'm going to lump together, perhaps okay. unfairly, and then let you reflect on them. Um, you talked about you talk about the power of enough mm-hmm. that uh, uh, that the person. That the striving for more stuff is not healthy, and we, we had a episode with Mary Hirschfeld talked about this at length. Uh, you talk about the virtue of not working too hard, and and yet I think about you, Ryan, as someone who's extraordinarily productive. At thirty-two, you've written how many books? Uh, I'm, I'm finishing ten. Yeah, so that's kind of crazy. Um, there. Um, they're full of interesting ideas. They're full of interesting stories. 
you, you, you have mastered the note card. It's phenomenal. <laughs> and I'm sure you will continue to do so. But you're forget debating or discussing your techniques and all that. You're a very productive person. Uh, do you think you've taken your own advice about working uh, and not working too hard and, and not um, and being satisfied? And I'm just throwing one other important uh, idea in the book, which uh, I think all of us struggle with, which is saying no. Uh, turning yes. down opportunity, which is so hard because you're always thinking, oh, what could it lead to? What's the harm? And, of course, the harm is the thing I can't do because I accept this invitation or this meeting or this time-consuming event. And um, I'm curious how well, you – Yeah, the, the insecurity for me, it's less like what could this become? And I, I actually tend to look at it more and I try to catch myself. When I do, I think – this might be the last time I ever get offered something. Yeah. Right. And and so that that insecurity again can be adaptive in the sense that it makes us accomplish things, but it it also deprives us of what the accomplishment is supposed to bring us, which is happiness and peace and contentment. And so um, it's not that I don't think I've taken my own advice. It's that. It's not my advice. I think it's it's a, it's, a ti- it's a timeless insight from history and and from religion and spirituality that I am constantly struggling with myself and and was writing to myself, you know, a, as much as anyone else. I I do think I have a a capacity to work and do things that maybe to some people seem, you know, like it 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 it, it must be incredibly difficult, but but I I I feel like I have lots of time with my family. I have time to do what I want. I, I, I'm in control of my schedule. So I maybe I rationalize it a little bit. Uh, maybe maybe I, I, I have a, a slightly larger you know gas tank than some people. But I definitely do overcommit, and I definitely struggle with this idea of what is enough. And, and it is insidious the way that the mind you know says, Here's what success looks like. Maybe it's a set of numbers. Maybe it's an accomplishing a certain thing. It's winning a certain you know prize or award or you know promotion, and then you get that thing, and then the mind goes, ah, but wouldn't two be better? Or uh, but look at what so and so has. And so that idea of of enough. And there's a Stefan Zweig quote who I think is one of the you know most underrated. Uh, literary and, and philosophical figures of the 20th century, um, he said, history knows of no conqueror who has been surfeited by conquests. You know, every Alexander mm-hmm. the Great thought he would be happy when he conquered the world. Julius Caesar felt like, looked at Alexander the Great and felt secure, insecure that he hadn't accomplished as much as he did. And then when he finally did, it was empty and meaningless. And, and, and so it, it is a, we are, we are, unrelenting in our ability to deceive ourselves that more is the answer and it just isn't and and it's something i struggle with uh, constantly my guest today has been ryan holiday his book is stillness is the key ryan thanks for being part of econ talk no thank you so much this was wonderful this is econ talk part of the library of economics and liberty For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.